listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Jonathan Davis, uh, for filling in for Keegan this morning as he's away. Uh, Jonathan's not a stranger to our church family, and we appreciate so much. He is an associate uh, student minister at uh, Cottonwood Creek down in Allen and um, leads Next Generation Worship, student worship there. And we're just grateful he had uh, a Sunday where he could slip away from some of those regular duties and be a part of our service here today. Um, thank you to our worship team. And um, I, I needed to worship with you today. I always need to worship with you, but today... I really needed to worship with you. And I hope that you understand the significance of what we were just singing. I hope that that was more than just words on a screen to you today. Because here's the thing. There's an 11-year-old girl who now knows the reality of what we were just singing about. She's in the very presence of our living hope. She knows the reality of the words we just sang. Death no longer has a grip on me. There's a Hebrew phrase for that, and it's holy cow. I mean, uh, man, our God is so good. Um, I've often said um, to young guys now, especially as I'm a little more seasoned, I guess that's a kind way of saying I've been doing this a while, but... um, It's the mercy and grace of God that he doesn't show us when he calls us to ministry all that lays ahead, what the journey's going to look like exactly. Um, There's times it would be super convenient, but uh, I think he doesn't show us that for good reason because clearly God's sovereign and he knows. If he showed us the mountaintop experiences and the victories we would enjoy and all those things, we would quickly become prideful, quickly become filled with ourselves and think, man, look look at me, look what I've done, look what I'm doing, all that, but... And if he showed us the, the valleys and the difficult seasons and the weeks like we've experienced as a church family, uh, we would quickly feel the crushing weight of just the inadequacy, uh, woefully inadequate uh, in seasons like this. And I think we would, uh, uh, we would tap the brakes real hard on surrendering to that call. Uh, but what I know is God is gracious and sovereign uh, in, in the midst of all those things. And it's just amazing how life works. You can experience both in the same week. <laughs> uh, over the course of ministry, I've walked through some of those seasons where it's just incredibly tough beyond words. Uh, and at the same time, in even the same day sometimes, experience great joy. And uh, our God is gracious in all those seasons. Uh, we will celebrate Alexis's life tomorrow morning at 10 right here in the FLC. And I just want to say how much I appreciate so many of you who have uh, jumped in and um, just walked with her family and been a part of all that God uh, is doing to minister to them in this season. None of us who are on staff here or get paid to minister would pretend to, to think that we're the only ones who do ministry here. Uh, in fact, uh, we would not be doing our job well if that was the case. And so uh, I've witnessed uh, the body of Christ serving faithfully uh, in the midst of very difficult circumstances uh, over these uh, last few weeks especially. And so thank you for that. Um, 
there will be a family meal provided tomorrow after the service. That will be over. Uh, our friends at the Christian Church have been gracious enough to open their fellowship hall to us. And so uh, some of you I know can provide uh, some food for that tomorrow. That will be greatly appreciated. Um, there is a central care page uh, for Alexis's family. And so you can find that through our app, through our website, through social media. You've probably seen the link for that. Uh, the family has chosen to ask that in lieu of flowers uh, that you would give to the Joshua Project and particularly to the playground uh, fund. And so that's a, a way that you can uh, honor her life as well. And so uh, thank you for that. And um, uh, let's turn in our Bibles then to John chapter 9. I'm so grateful uh, that every Sunday I have the privilege of preaching um, a living Savior. Um, and every Sunday... Uh, regardless of uh, how many more weeks it may be till Easter and everything, we, uh, we preach and we serve a risen Savior who has conquered death. Um, and that's why we can know uh, that Alexis, her faith has now become sight. And, uh, and uh, we find great hope in that, our living hope. Well, I want you to imagine for just a moment um, being born blind. And growing to adulthood without ever having seen anything. No light, no color, no beauty, no faces, no sunsets, no sunrises, nothing. Living life in total darkness is a terrifying thought. And yet, this was the reality for the man that we find here in John chapter 9. We're not told his name but we do know that he was blind from birth, we're told that. And we can only imagine the isolation that he experienced as a result. Well, I would not pretend to know what it is like uh, to live a visually impaired life. Uh, I, I know certainly anybody would know that there are challenges associated with that uh, beyond what most of us can even imagine. But particularly in that day, there was no technology available. Uh, there were no uh, tools available that, that, that some in our culture in our day and time would, would be able to experience and have audio books and things of that sort. And there's just a number of different things that can make it a bit easier, if you want to say it that way. But in that day, a person with such a, a disability would largely be marginalized, pushed to the fringes of society. Think, think about what happens... When the light penetrates a long-standing darkness, initially the entrance of light cuts like a knife with penetrating pain. In fact, I recently had a short hospital stay, and I will just say this. There is nothing more annoying than medical staff turning on the light in the middle of the night. I mean, when that happens, we find that light is painful. It's, it's unwelcome. It's intrusive. It's disruptive. It's, it's almost blinding. And as we come to John chapter 9, we've, we've reached this major turning point in John's gospel. Up to this point, John's emphasis has been on revealing and demonstrating clearly who Jesus is. As he said in John chapter 20 in that introductory message, that we might believe in him. And it seems that John's primary audience up to this point has been unbelievers or, or skeptics or those wrestling with doubt. And in many ways... Jesus' self-revelation uh, reached a climax uh, at the end of chapter 8, where we were last week, when he clearly and powerfully declares, before Abraham was, I am. 
Now in John chapter 9, we have a unique and centrally important story, the healing of a man born blind. And the story is unique because, for one, it's the longest miracle story in any of the Gospels. Uh, this one miracle, you'll find, takes up all 41 verses, essentially, of chapter 9. We're going to be in this chapter, Lord willing, for the next couple of weeks. The, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, that we'll eventually get to, is a longer story, but that episode is, is, is more than just a miracle story, and, and we'll see that when we get there. But this is also a very clear and compelling conversion account, including the cost of conversion. As this man is put out of the synagogue, now, it seems that the primary audience that John uh, is addressing shifts with this man's conversion. From the end of chapter 9, really through the rest of the gospel, it seems as if John is now primarily addressing believers on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, including the cost of discipleship. There's, there's cost involved in discipleship. A lot of us don't like to think of that. We want our Christianity to be convenient, but Christianity in the biblical sense is anything but convenient. There's a cost involved. And, and so we, we begin to see that more and more as we make our way through the remainder of John's gospel. And so we see here that Jesus brings joy and, and ultimately salvation to the life of this blind man. But also there's a judgment which separates this man from his familiar community. And in this way, his experience parallels that of many Christians, particularly in the early church and even around the world today. We sometimes like to think that we are somehow suffering for the cause of Christ. But the truth is, few of us know what it is to truly suffer for Christ. There are people around the world today who truly know what it is to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, it shouldn't surprise you, but scholars disagree as to the timing of this miracle as related to chapters 8 and 10. Chapters 7 and 8 take place during the Feast of Tabernacles. We've talked about that, some of the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. Even as, as Jesus has declared, I am the light of the world. I am the living water and those, those sorts of things. It was all in connection with that. And so um, that's where chapters 7 and 8 happen, during the Feast of Tabernacles. In the fall, think October. Okay, about six months before Jesus' triumphal entry during Passover in the spring. Which, by the way... Hamas launched their most recent attacks on Israel on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It would be hard to imagine that that is not intentional. Uh, and so think about just the, the connection even to our modern world. Um, and John chapter 10, verse 22, tells us that that chapter takes place during the Feast of Dedication in the winter. Okay, so we're trying to get kind of the time frame here. The Feast of Dedication is the holiday that we know most commonly as Hanukkah. Okay, so obviously, chapter 9 falls somewhere between chapters 8 and 10. I learned that in seminary, okay? <laughs> chapter 9 comes between chapters 8 and 10. I know, that's impressive. Uh, so we know that it takes place in or near Jerusalem because Jesus sends this blind man, as we're about to see, to wash in the pool of Siloam which is just outside Jerusalem. So 
given the hostility of the religious leaders that they've been showing toward Jesus, we even saw that last week, it seems unlikely that he was hanging out in Jerusalem during the months between tabernacles and dedication, or between October and December. In fact, the transition from John 8 to John 9, which is where we are this morning, makes it most natural to understand that this miracle took place pretty quickly after John chapter 8, if not immediately, as Jesus was making his way out of Jerusalem at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you look at verse 59 of chapter 8, where we were last week, and and we kind of get a running start into verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, he went into ninja mode, right, hid himself and went out of the temple. And then verse 1 of chapter 9 says, as he passed by, he saw a man born blind, a man blind from birth. Okay, so at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus had proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. Here, Jesus repeats this statement to his disciples. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So if John 8 has been a proclamation of Jesus as the light of the world, then John 9 is the demonstration of Jesus as the light of the world. In action, doing the works of God which had he been sent to do. And so hopefully that kind of brings you up to speed with where we are as we move into chapter 9 this morning. So I hope that you'll follow along. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of John chapter 9 this morning. It says, as he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? There Again, an indication that he would be marginalized because of this disability, his blindness. He was forced to beg, literally. And so uh, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He, he kind of looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. And before you get too distracted by my voice this morning, okay, it, it really doesn't hurt as much as it might sound like it does. And I have, I, I have no idea what's going to happen, okay, in the course of this month. I may at some point sound like a junior high boy going through puberty, okay? Um, and so I apologize for that. But let's look at verses 1 through 5, first of all. And I want you to notice here this misunderstanding of, of sin and suffering and the connection. So we begin with some rather insensitive, almost just even rude words from the disciples that reflects really the prevailing theology of their day. See, they had this kind of transactional understanding of how God works. So if someone's experiencing something bad, they're experiencing a sickness or a disability like this, certainly that must be directly connected to the judgment of God. 
Okay, and so that's why they ask this the way that they do. They see this man, and somehow Jesus' disciples, they know that he was born blind. So the disciples say to Jesus, likely within the hearing of this blind man himself, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples, oddly enough, are interested in having a theological discussion of who's to blame for this man's blindness. Could it have been the man himself? Could he somehow have sinned in his mother's womb and so he came out blind? Or maybe the parents sinned and were punished by being given a blind son? And so we're naturally, I hope, understandably shocked by the callousness of the disciples. But, But their thinking was not unusual in their day, particularly. They rightly understood that sin and suffering are connected. Okay, don't miss the theological implications of that. Sin brought suffering and death into the world. Hear that again. Sin brought suffering and death into the world. We live in a world cursed by the consequences of rebellion against God. Okay, that's why we experience sorrow and sadness and death is a part of life in this broken, sinful world. So it's not wrong to make a connection between sinful actions and suffering. The man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda, remember, was told by Jesus, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. So the disciples had some reason, even in their experiences with Jesus, for drawing this line from suffering back to to sin of some kind. But Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. Sometimes specific sins will lead to specific suffering, but that is not always the case. And it is presumptuous and even prideful to think that we can know and understand things known only to God. Things that we can't understand. So this man had lived his life not only stuck in in blindness, but also carrying the burden of accusation of being someone who deserved to be punished by God with blindness. And Jesus makes it clear that his blindness is not the direct result of his sinfulness nor the sinfulness of his parents. Rather, the purpose of God behind this man's blindness is that the works of God might be displayed in him. We just sang about it. For your glory and for your name. You're an artist and a potter and the canvas and the clay. You're working all these things ultimately for your glory and my good. And so Jesus affirms that God is sovereign over sickness and suffering. God reigns over our tragedies as well as our triumphs. God has his purposes. We can't always see them, but he always has them. Our God is not haphazard. Okay? God has never at any point uttered the words, uh-oh, didn't see that coming. Okay? God's never off his game or you know, he's like falling asleep at the wheel or something. Now, we're prone to think that maybe, but that simply is not the case. God has never, there's never been a time when he was not completely in control. So the next time we face some suffering or tragedy, instead of asking why me instead of, in sort of a self-focused despair, It would really be better for us to ask, Lord, what are your purposes in this? How can you be glorified in this? Show me your will for me that I might honor you and benefit from this painful reality. Understand this. We we know, again, this connection between sin and suffering because we say it this way many times. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. We may not always see it in the moment may not fully understand it, but ultimately when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. 
And when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Again, you may not see that in the moment. You may not fully understand that. It may not look like, man, I did, man bam. It's just, no, but just know that that is, so, so understand what we're saying here. And, and, and as, as weird as it may seem to, to read these disciples' words, and you think, wow, what, how callous to, to assume that. There are still people who think that way today. As someone who lives with a chronic illness, I, I've had people suggest to me that I have type 1 diabetes because of God's judgment on my life. And I've wrestled with those thoughts. And I've prayed through that and all those things. And ultimately, I've come to the conclusion, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me through this? What is it that you want to do through this? Because ultimately, my aim is to, to see that you are glorified in it. And it has a refining purpose. I mean... I found myself many times, I would never wish it upon anyone, but over these last 27 years, I can say that it's, it's forced me so many times to lean upon the Lord in ways that I probably wouldn't otherwise. Uh, it, it's difficult to thank God in, in the midst of some of those things, but that's how God works. And so there is this, this misunderstanding of sin and suffering that is still very common in the day in which we live. There's a second thing I want us to do here, and I want us to understand Siloam. Siloam, what is that? Verses 6 and 7. So Jesus then heals this blind man in a very unusual way. He spits on the ground, makes mud out of the dirt and his saliva. Takes the mud, places it on the man's eyes, then he sends him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which John is careful to let us know here means scent. So what is happening here? It's, it's impossible to be 100% certain but ne- because neither Jesus nor John fully explain these actions to us. But I think it makes the most sense to see Jesus' actions as a demonstration of deeper truth. That is quite often the case. Okay? Applying mud to the man's eyes does two things. It makes the man doubly blind. Okay? If you can just imagine that, pointing to a double blindness. And it requires him to go and wash off the mud in order to be healed. So the fact that the man was born blind is, is important here too. In other words, he was not just blind physically, but he was also blind spiritually. And as a side note, I believe Jesus does this action to intentionally violate the Pharisees' Sabbath regulations, which included making mud as a form of work. And we'll see that a little bit later. So then Jesus, after doing this demonstration of double blindness, sends this man to wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now remember, Jesus had just said here, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus is the sent one. This is not the first time we've seen that language in John's gospel. Jesus is the sent one, the one sent. He's on mission. He has a purpose for coming to this earth. He's the sent one, clearly and repeatedly. We see that through John's gospel. Now, the pool of Siloam was called this, means sent, because uh, the water that filled it was sent to it through the water tunnels dug by King Hezekiah, leading from the Gihon Spring through the Kidron Valley. Okay, and so in Hebrew, the name, the the root uh, of the pool was Shiloh. Shiloh. Shiloh is a, is a key word in Messianic prophecy. In Genesis 49, Judah prophesies, or Jacob prophesies about his sons, the 12 patriarchs of the tribe of Israel, the tribes of Israel. So to Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, 
and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That is the, the King James Version rendering, and the New American Standard renders it essentially the same way. Other translations render it a little bit differently. The scepter will not depart from, uh, from Judah, and with a ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. It's, it's a bit difficult to translate into English, but the Hebrew is Shiloh. The, the same as the, the name, the root, same root as the pool here in John chapter 9. And, and I would just say this, there are both Jewish and Christian scholars who agree that Genesis 49.10 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Okay, so what we're seeing here is only by going to the sent one, to Shiloh, washing there does this blind man receive his sight. He has to, to, to obey, reminiscent of, remember Naaman, remember Naaman, commander of the army of Syria who was sent by Elisha to wash in the Jordan River uh, to be cleansed of his leprosy. So Jesus is leading this man toward faith, gives him a command to obey. And there had to have been some faith involved in that moment because he puts this mud on his eyes and says, now go wash. He had to take the first step toward Siloam, right? So there had to have been some, an, a, some sense of faith involved in that. Okay, if someone were to walk up to me today and do something similar, I might go, oh, okay, like what is going on here? So he, he takes that, that initial step of faith to go and wash in the pool of Siloam and, and find his physical healing. Now, in the midst of all that, I want us to also understand today, as we look at verses 8 through 12, the false understanding of the skeptics. This man goes, washes, returns home, seeing for the first time in his life. Can you just imagine? With his new sight, I mean, what, what that experience must have been like. And I, I know because of uh, social media and some of those things today, we, we sometimes get to see little snippets or videos of, of maybe a child who uh, is profoundly hearing impaired, who's you know, gotten cochlear implants maybe, and they hear their mother's voice for the first time. And I mean, it's just like, it's just, it, it's, it's just emotional because it's just like, Wow, it's like their face just comes to life as they hear those sounds for the first time. So you can just imagine what's happening here. Now, with this new sight, he causes a stir among his neighbors. It, it, they say, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. In other words, he, he looks like him, but it, it can't be him. He, but he kept saying, I am the man. I, I would love to have been there in that moment. It would almost be humorous because these people are like, you know, they're going back and forth. Are you sure? Is it him? Is it him? Well, he's there. He's there when this is going on. And it's as if he's standing over to the side going, um, excuse me, um, I'm, I'm the man. Like, yes, I, I'm, I'm, the guy, I'm the guy, okay? And so, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So the miracle that Jesus performs here is so amazing that many people are slow to believe it. They had passed by this man, some of them uh, daily, I'm sure. His blindness forcing him to sit and beg for a living. But how many times do people walk past needs without really seeing them? Let me phrase that another way. How many times do we walk past needs without ever seeing them? Isn't this the man? No, he just looks like the man. Apparently, they were having these discussions right in front of him because, again, he's saying, I'm the man. Yeah, I, I'm that guy. 
Now, we can be so quick to dehumanize people, to dismiss them, to judge them, to write them off, to condemn them, to ignore them. Surely, among the things that we can learn from this chapter, we need to hear this rebuke and repent of the way that we often treat human beings made in God's image and precious in his sight. Their skepticism over this man's healing is reflected in their questioning of him. How were your eyes opened? Tell us how this happened, huh? Some kind of sorcery going on here. Some kind of his response to them reflects his lack of understanding of and faith in Jesus. Now you got to remember, up to this point, he had not actually seen Jesus. He wouldn't have known Jesus if he walked up in that moment. He did. He'd never seen Jesus physically with his eyes because Jesus rubbed the mud on, said, "Go wash." Now he's having this conversation with these neighbors and everything, and so it was like. He, 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 he would not have known who Jesus was. And so how does he respond? He refers simply to Jesus as the man called Jesus. Th- doesn't know who Jesus really is, barely knows his name. Now, this is now the second major healing in John's gospel, which, which d- does not come in response to an individual's righteousness. But a sovereignly initiated, uh, sovereignly initiated event, healing by Jesus for his purposes. And so as to where Jesus is now, the healed man doesn't know. So as we continue looking at this wonderful passage, we're going to see ultimately this blind man's faith gradually grow, leading to another encounter with Jesus, one which will leave him seeing not just physically but also spiritually. Now, here's where, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I found myself growing, and, and this is something that I've, I've been experiencing on a personal level for some time now, because there seems to be, uh, in, in Christianity in America particularly, in general, there seems to be this prevailing attitude as it relates to our relationship with the world around us that is clearly broken, clearly sinful, that it's an us versus them mentality. As we see the the cultural decline and the moral decay and the foundations, it seems, uh, of of our Judeo-Christian values crumbling and all those things, it can quickly become a us versus them. Us versus them. When in reality, if we are truly understanding the Great Commission and the gospel itself, it should be us for them. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying us for their sin. It is us for them, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. And so think of it like this. Let's say, I mean, we're all in a situation where where the lights go out, boom. And somebody in the room knows how to get the lights back on. But instead of going over and turning the light on, you just stand there and just start pontificating on why we're all in darkness. And it's because of them. It's because of them. It's us versus them. When the gospel would say, the Great Commission would say, turn the light on. Give them the light. Give them the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be for them enough. Love them enough to give them the light. So these people clearly aren't getting it. Even the ones who claim to follow Jesus many times don't get it. Instead of helping someone to to find sight, go to the source of the one who opens blinded eyes. We we want to moan about how they are groping in darkness. So how do we do the works of God? 
If the text here clearly says, we must do the works of him who sent me, that's what Jesus himself said. So I want to close by circling back and looking just a little more closely at his response to the disciples' question about this man born blind in verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is not only correcting their misunderstanding of the nature and the cause and the purpose of this man's blindness, he is also inviting them to look at life differently, to see themselves and those around them through the lens of God's kingdom purposes. What he's essentially saying to his disciples in that moment is, you know who needs their vision corrected here? You guys. You guys. You're all worried about the reason behind why this man is, is, is blind. And you want to be able to lay the blame on someone and everything else. And so while, yes, he needs to have sight, you guys need your vision corrected. You need some corrective lenses so that you can see the world around you differently, to see themselves and those around them through this lens of God's kingdom purposes. Let, let's just be real. We tend to go through life with a completely skewed perspective many times. I don't know about you, but I don't have to work very hard at being self-centered. Can I just be transparent with you for a moment? I, I don't know if I've ever gotten up and thought to myself, you know what, today I just need to think about myself more. I need to be more self-centered. I don't, I do, that, it doesn't take work for me to be self-centered. It comes naturally. It's my natural bent, Okay. And so we, we are often self-centered following our own agenda. Rather than see other people as image bearers, we see them as problems or points of discussion or we don't see them at all. So rather than seeing God's perspective on our lives and our interactions, we generally, if, if we're not careful, we don't think about God at all throughout the course of our day. We think in terms of what we want, what we're trying to accomplish, what we need to do and what helps or hinders and, us in accomplishing our goals. Jesus is the light of the world. Think about the spirit, the, the, the theological implications of this, who shatters the darkness of our self-centered perspective on life. His coming, it, it, yes, it may be painful and piercing, but it is ultimately sight-giving liberation from our selfish blindness. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. This is how Jesus challenged his disciples. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, 2023, October the 22nd, 2023, Jesus has gone from the world. Okay, But he lives within us by the Holy Spirit. And it is his light in us that truly makes us, as scripture says, the light of the world. So the call for us today is to do the works of the one who sent Jesus and the one who indeed is now sending us into the world. We must do the works of him who sends us. That's why it's called the great commission. That's a joining together of two words. We are on mission together, co-mission. And so we're to, we're to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to do the works of God, to shine his light in a dark world? Will we be an influence for truth, for goodness, for healing, for gospel proclamation and demonstration, living out the truths of the gospel that we proclaim? 
as the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus now sends us into the world. We are called to speak the truth about Jesus, just as Jesus spoke the truth about himself. We're called to demonstrate the love of God the way Jesus demonstrated the love of God. We're called to reach out with the healing compassion of Jesus in our relationships, in our community, and in this world. So will we walk in the light of Jesus, the light of the world? Will we do the works of him who sent us while it is day? Will we live for his kingdom and his glory in the world and not our selfish, petty, blind, foolish agendas? He who sent Jesus is sending us. We must do his works, manifest his glory in this world. I would guess that more than a few of you are sitting here this morning remembering a song that you sang as a kid. This little light of mine... I'm going to let it shine. And we had all these little verses, you know, I'm not going to let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. What? And the kids are like, scream, no, I'm going to let it shine. Here it is. This is the biblical reality of what we're to be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, some of us don't let our light shine like we should. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's apathy, maybe your light is hidden under a bushel of sinfulness in your own life, pride. You, you can't even see the world around you the way Jesus does because you're so full of yourself. He's the light of the world. And by his Holy Spirit lives within us. That's why he says, you are the light of the world. We could for just a moment bow our heads together. As we reflect on the text today, you may be thinking, man, this is not the typical way to apply this text. Maybe you've heard the story, as we sometimes call it, of the man born blind. Yeah, that was that time that Jesus spit on the ground, made mud, wiped it on that guy's eyes, and healed him. But I think so much more is happening here. Hopefully it's clear to you that Jesus, while he does give this man physical sight, he also gives spiritual sight to the blind. And that's why my hope and prayer is that every person in this room can sing along with the hymn writer, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I've been given sight. Because the biblical truth is this, if you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually blind. You are spiritually blind. And the only way that you can receive spiritual sight is not through your best efforts, your self-righteousness, your self-improvement. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ, Shiloh, the sent one who came to give sight to the blind. If your spiritual eyes have been opened by the amazing grace of God, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you have a task. 
You've been commissioned to be the light of the world. What does your light look like? Is it hidden behind your personal agenda? Your apathy? Is it hidden behind your busyness? Too busy for all that great commission stuff? I don't know what God may be saying to you today through his word and by his Holy Spirit. I've just asked that you be responsive to him. We don't often say this, but please know that the, the front of this auditorium is always open. If you feel the need to come and pray, if you need someone to pray with you, I would love to do that. We have others who would love to do that today. If you'd like to know more about what it means to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I would love to open God's word and share with you how you can know that you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the narrative of John's gospel here. As he records for us the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was sent to give sight to the blind. Not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. And I pray that if there's anyone here today still walking in spiritual darkness, that by your grace, your Holy Spirit and your word, their eyes be opened to the good news of the gospel. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.